Hello and welcome to episode number two of Mid-Era Meets, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music industry. This month I'm speaking to Kenny Young, composer, sound designer and audio director for some of the biggest computer games of recent history. I caught up with Kenny earlier on this year to talk about how he approaches the audio in his computer games, whether virtual reality is going to change the way we perceive and implement audio, and whether adaptive music and interactive scores are the way forward for computer games. So let's check it out. What were your, can you tell me your first memories of music? The earliest memory has to be learning the piano, which I must have been about four. And I can still, and I don't play the piano now, so that like crashed and burned. I got lessons from my next door neighbour for about a year. Auntie Duncan. Went to Auntie Duncan's house. <laughs> and my mum set me off with some freshly made bread, so we were paying her in bread. <laughs> good deal. That um, good yeah, deal. good for her. And the thing is, Auntie Duncan was an amazing baker, so I don't know if she like ate my mum's bread or binned it. <laughs> it was good bread. It was good bread. <laughs> but, but Auntie Duncan was like a different class level. Um, so that's my earliest memory, but the one that I was thinking of first was, um, so I got, had piano lessons for a year and then my neighbour was worried that she like she might be teaching me bad habits because she was a pianist, but she wasn't actually a teacher. Mm-hmm. And she thought, I don't want to teach him anymore because I might be teaching him bad habits. So that stopped. And I guess the idea was that um, I would pick up the piano lessons again with a teacher, but maybe my parents, maybe just life happened. I don't know, but like that, that just stopped. And then when I was at primary one or two uh, school, we did this slightly mad production of Peter and the Wolf, which was like the Prokofiev uh, music, but with the primary school kids in my class acting it out, the story, live to like a recording of the music. And then the thing <laughs> that was mad was to the side of the stage where, because I, I, I wasn't the wolf, <laughs> I wasn't the granddad, uh, I wasn't Peter. Peter no. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a little fake orchestra that was miming off the stage. And our teacher, Mrs. Nash, Avril Nash, asked us to bring in uh, a musical instrument, if you had one, to mime. And we had on the wall of our house a violin that my gran had been given for nursing a couple of, like, uh, this is a story, spinster sisters when they were dying, and my nurse, had, uh, my gran had sort of nursed them. Wow. And the family had said, so this would be in Glasgow in the middle 20th century, and the family, when, when, when <laughs> my dad had, gran had done her job, they said, is there anything you want from their house as a thank you for, for doing this? And she said, oh, I'll take that, that violin, that's old fiddle <laughs> that's sitting on the wall. And uh, so that was sitting on the wall of our house, because my dad had it, just a bit of obviously that wasn't working it had like one string in it but i took that in and i was miming away sawing away to peter and the wolf uh this thing and so i came back from that experience said to my parents i think i'd quite like to play the violin that was great fun <laughs> no, do, 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 do. the music coming out of a pa system i'm, I'm pretty good I'm at the pretty violin good. i sound great <laughs> and of course the violin's one of the hardest instruments to learn so but my uh, my parents were really supportive like my both of my parents were musical um, my dad was like a really keen amateur musician when like he was like like everyone probably part of the folk revival in the 60s and 70s he uh he uh you know played like on an album in, in a gallic folk group called the hillerich um which means the exiles which is quite rock and roll rock and roll but pretty hardcore folk singing gallic uh, folk songs and um and so he was really keen that I sort of be a musician and uh, particularly in terms of Scottish traditional music and so he was quite he was totally into the idea of me wanting to learn 
the violin because he was just like great son of being a fiddler and so i got violin lessons from the age of six or seven up until up until i was 21 actually so that was a really quite privileged you know musical education to have and that's mm -hmm. really it's my musical time. background yeah mm. um yeah okay so we both studied music tech at university which yeah. i thought was quite interesting um, and you went on to do sound design for Moving Image, is that yep, right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. basically, I was choosing between software, engineering, computer science degrees, and then I had this music technology course at Edinburgh, and that seemed attractive because it it was it was you know it was like half music, half technology, which sounds stupid, but like as as someone who was uh, you know a bit of a nerd. It felt like that was allowing me to carry on and keep a lot of my musical background, even though I felt like I was sort of moving away from it mm -hmm. but also combine it with other aspects of stuff i was into so that's really why i did it and in many respects i think if i if i had just had a magic wand i probably would have quite happily done a much more vocational course that was basically just uh messing about recording stuff it's i think that's what i would have liked to have done but edinburgh being an old uni it was a bit more academic so i was doing music stuff um so doing harmony and counterpoint which is like traditional composition studies, which I really struggled with because I didn't, tragically, the Scottish uh, high school education system isn't really, it's not as advanced as the English A-level. Um, so mm. it meant going to university on doing a more traditional music degree that I actually really struggled because I didn't have those some big holes in my learning, which everyone else had. Which in is, music theory? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just for example, I think for the A-level music you mm. maybe that's changed now but it, it made, meant that there was this weird bias where scottish kids were unlikely less likely to be accepted to somewhere like edinburgh so it's a scottish that's university so odd, yeah. with a bias against scottish students just because of the national curriculum wasn't as good as the english one what i got from work uh, the course at edinburgh was i discovered sort of working creatively with sound because up to that point i didn't i wasn't conscious of sound it was where music and the sound thing was just like something that I guess like most people you take for granted. So it got me interested in working with sound creatively. Um, but when I finished or coming towards finishing that, I knew that I wanted to, I sort of identified working in games, but I knew just from the research I'd done and, you know, this is like, you know, 2002. So there was some, the internet was around, but there wasn't many game audio resources in the way that there's an abundance of stuff now. Yeah. And I just got the sense that I was not hireable. <laughs> Because I didn't like, I didn't have a demo reel, and even back then it was really clear you needed a demo reel to get hired. I didn't have one because I hadn't actually done any sound to picture work. Mm -hmm. So I'd done quite a lot. I've done stuff like uh, electroacoustic music composition. I've done some soundscapes, and I was really into it. I really enjoyed it. That's why I knew I wanted to sort of pursue that. But I didn't feel like that would necessarily get me hired. Yeah. So that's why I went to do a master's degree. It wasn't for the qualification because it's just a bit of paper. It mm -hmm. was for to to get some experience working on. Sound because there was no there was no computer games courses f for audio at that point, and I don't think there were many computer game focused things for design or even yeah there programming wasn't many. at that Maybe point. One or That's two all come the, yeah because we're a similar age. I'm thirty five next right. year, so, so you've, I'm only a couple of years. You'll below, you'll remember so. all that yeah, as yeah, well yeah. from from back in the, the late nineties, early two thousands. But because games were sort of still in that weird place where there were still quite a lot of gamers, but they they weren't part of mainstream culture in the way that they are are getting there now mm. it was still considered to be like you know a weird hobby yeah even when <laughs> it was PS just on the yeah, ps1 became started cool, to break the back it? of that it became yeah cool, but it still wasn't like so that would be early playstation 2 must have come out 2003 something like that so it's around about that point where it was just starting to become more and more mainstream 
but not not enough that universities have seen the bums and seats opportunities that they have since. Mm -hmm. So so I couldn't study game audio. I probably would have if I had that choice. So I studied uh, sound of the moving image, which is basically film sound. And that was down in Bournemouth. And that was a great course. And the main thing I got out of that was um, probably more of an interest in the conceptual side of sound. So um, really just thinking about not so much the sort of you know the, the the hands-on sound editing side of things but more just thinking about the, the sound world and the film world and the characters and how the sound can back that up in a way that traditionally you think of music as being the primary emotional signifier for um the soundtrack but thinking about how sound and really what what films and people mean by sound design is that uh, sort of more emotional use of sound hmm. um from first-person perspective which allows you to do sort of psychological stuff um that sort of represents what characters are feeling and all those kinds of things and and yeah and so that's what i got from that course and i think that that's something which certainly at the point i got into games was kind of wasn't really part of people's thinking about game audio i think there's an interview or something that you wrote which i read where you said that it, um it's a bit of a, a difficult uh, the tragedy of good audio is that it goes on when it's done yeah. well. It goes unnoticed. Yeah, it's such a valid point. That is, which is kind of how it it should be. And I think there's a lot of it's interesting. It's like there's a lot. This is like the 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 two things that pull each other in terms of what I do is that what makes what I do really attractive in so many ways. And I'll have to sort of explain that is that people like I said until I studied my degree in music technology that which introduced me to the just even the concept of sound as this. Th thing <laughs> i wasn't aware of it and that's how most people th live throughout the rest of their lives they're just not aware of sound and they're aware of the impact that it has on you constantly moment to moment um in all these different ways mm. conscious and subconscious and because of that phenomenon where people aren't aware of it there's a bunch of benefits there for example the autonomy you get as a sound designer is huge because no one's really telling you how to do your job because they can't because they're not thinking about your job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so obviously someone who is a professional designer will hopefully start to think about sound. And I mean like a, a non-sound designer, like a game sound. They'll, they'll start to think about sound a bit in the sense that they'll be aware that sound can do certain things. identifies when they've got that feeling that that was a bit shit that that that's not disputable yeah you can't, gut in, gut yeah reaction, like if can't you really didn't enjoy it, it yeah you didn't enjoy it and mm. i it doesn't it doesn't matter if i disagree with your like when you said you need to change this like there's this scenarios that have come up where some i've had really specific feedback that says you know you need to uh, you know change that thing and I thought about it and I realised that the audio is not actually the problem. It's like an aspect of the way when you use it. So then maybe there's a repetitive sound. Repetitive sound can be really annoying. Mm -hmm. Why are we hearing that sound so much? Yeah, that's annoying. Is changing the sound the right thing to do? Or is it actually changing it so we don't hear that sound so much? Yeah, so and that's not an audio problem. Yeah. yeah, that's actually a game design issue. Yeah. And so... I think you're right about, <laughs> about how important the music and the audio is. Cause I, I can't remember where I read, but... I think we hear over 10 octaves of sound mm. 
and visually we can see two octaves of color. Yeah. So therefore the depth of the sound and the audio is, is really, really important. I think it's a similar thing with like architecture when people are building these yeah. wonderful, great buildings. They don't maybe think about the acoustics of it too much. Yeah. So they end up if they do build this this you know wonderful huge space atrium, with trouble. <laughs> yeah, and then oh god, no one can hear each other talking yeah. in there. It's always yeah. like a secondary thought. Whereas yeah, I think I think for you and for me, um, audio is very very important and yeah. it, it it's a very powerful thing. So it needs to be. It, yeah, that, that's what we we're talking about. Was the how powerful it is and what's interesting then is like the work you're doing is still having an impact on what they are perceiving but they don't perceive it as coming from what you've done and so i can think of uh, things like i changed a game i worked on years ago where it was a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a murder simulator driving shooting game mm-hmm. and i changed the uh, i redid the uh, the combat sounds so like when you were hitting someone over the head with a baseball bat um it sounded a lot more uh i guess impressive it was basically mm. just louder yeah, <laughs> uh, change of sounds. They were loud. Had more impact, and um, an email went out to the team. It was like, to, but they went to the animators. Like, what have you done? This is this is great. All oh, the animators are much more like snappy and woo. And he's like, I've done not done anything. anything. And yeah, I was like, yeah, I've changed all the sounds. And it's you know that's a really good example of how sound impacts on your perception, but you're not aware of it doing its thing. Definitely. So when you whenever you get those like A B, it's quite rare to get that those kind of um, big juxtaposition A B tests in audio. Uh, in real life because normally ch- things change iteratively so you don't get that sense of a change mm-hmm. but if you've got that kind of example where you know I'd worked on something and then just done a big check-in where it completely changes it but hadn't told anybody <laughs> yeah. maybe because I was worried about people like you know, they might not like what I've done so I'll just change it and if no one notices then great but they did notice they just didn't notice it was the audio mm, and then um, I think that happens a lot but where it gets tricky is yeah audio does we talk about it going affecting you through through the back door of the mind, so the ears being that back door, mm-hmm. you're not aware that it's having this impact on. It, it goes as far, you know, through things like the McGurk effect, that uh, what you hear actually literally changes what you see, like the, the way your perception works in your brain. Mm. What you hear changes what you see, and because you, you have to understand what idea. you're seeing isn't real, it's you're perceiving it. So it's not, you know, although everything feels concrete and real to us, it's actually just your perception of it, and what you hear changes what you see, which is kind of mad. That is mad, isn't but it? The, the fusion is, of those two things yeah, together. Yeah, it's absolutely demonstrable. So it's like, and so that's our little insight. We can get into the fact that that is happening, and we don't really know to what extent that happens. Uh, how our what we hear affects our emotions, how our emotions affect what we perceive, all the rest of it. So it's clearly it's a really complex model. You left university having done your masters and went yep. to work for Sony. Yep. Uh, in London, Sony Studio. How did the, that place compare to Media Molecule? Oh, it's totally different. I mean, you can't. Media Molecule is kind of different from most places. Just like, like I mentioned, it's got this sort of meritocracy where uh, well, when I joined, it was like 15 people, something like that. Wow, there was only 20 really something team. people shipped Little Big Planet. It was really small, small team, small company. So the audio experience in Little Big Planet and the Terry games were just, um, they were just what? what I designed them to be basically mm, and they were incredible yeah I mean, so I remember playing Little Big Planet <laughs> on my sister's PS3 and just being like wow the, everything about this game is brilliant from Stephen Fry talking you through the beginning <laughs> bit to yeah the, the sounds I think were something that captured me the theme tune was just so iconic it just yeah. fitted so well with that yeah. game the, the next game they'll ship will be it'll blow your mind when you see it because I think um, certainly the tech, they've been 
creating a lot of original audio technology. So it's if, if you're into music technology, which you obviously are, then mm-hmm. you'll love it because on that side of things, it's uh, it's absolutely amazing because um, it's effective. It's user generated content on crack. Oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, it's, awesome. it's so it's not Little Big Planet, but it's um, Dreams is sort of taking that all to the next level. The game that you've just worked on. Um... Tethered. Yes. I mean, in many respects, Tethered is a super simple strategy game, but it because it's uh, in VR, and if for anyone who hasn't done <laughs> VR, it is quite a profound, uh, a different kind of experience to all of a sudden, because you're basically transported to another world, because you're looking out of your own eyes and hearing with your own ears at another space, effectively, and that's that's what VR is. It's Literally, literally virtual reality <laughs> um, and I think that it's one of those things that you talk about it that doesn't mean anything but li- imagine if you were transported to the surface of Mars that would obviously be quite a full on experience that's what VR gives you that yeah and imagine you not... had a hat you could put on yeah. that puts you on Mars it's, yeah it's, it's it reminds me a little bit of it? that show Nightmare when we were kids you know where they have like you 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 have to it's actually nothing like that because you put on a helmet then you can't see anything and you can't see it <laughs> you can just see the floor <laughs> so it's nothing like that it's the opposite you put the hat on and you can see the other world mm. <laughs> um, and so even though Tether is a really simple strategy game which I think um, you know so you know if you, you can play it without VR they, they changed that because sales in VR are, 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 are challenging because there's not a huge uh, uh, market for it at the moment because there's not enough people have the the, the 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 hardware to be able to sell enough units to be profitable. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff that's built is either really small scale and experimental, or it's got funding from uh, the platform holders, Oculus, uh, Facebook, or Sony with their PSVR, etc., etc. It is sort of a bit life changing when you do it. It's, yeah, it's pretty profound. It, is, it really is. Yeah, and uh, all I, all I can hope is that anyone hears that thinks. Nah, <laughs> check it out. I just hope the first thing they check out is something that is actually profound rather than just like stupid. Yeah, there's, there's a square pusher up. video that just made me feel so ill. I bet. <laughs> I mean, square pusher's music can have that effect on you if you don't like it. It was too colourful. There's too, too much, much going happening. On. It was yeah. really nauseating. But um, yeah, there's some great stuff, uh, some great VR stuff that makes you, when you take the helmet off or when you take a headset off, you just, you want to just yeah. check the real world. Yeah, reality feels and less real. It does. Yeah. It's really strange. It's really so weird. Engross- engrossing. Yeah. And how does that affect, like, how does that affect the audio side? Like, how does, how does writing for VR differ from, so, like, 2D stuff? In a in a way, I I don't view it that differently, which is sort of um, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, when you're not allowed to say something sacrilegious, is that the word? No, yeah, it's something. No. It's a better word. It's a better word. It's 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 uh, basically apparently VR audio is like profoundly different, and like everyone can't get their head around it. Um, and because I view the game sort of the process of creating the player experience in a more sort of systemic way, where you know, you look at the project and the project informs, which is obviously what people do. But as a result of having that way of thinking about projects, it meant that working on a VR game, I didn't find it that different, to be honest. There was new technology there that had to get the head around. But really, if you're starting with a player experience and thinking, okay, what is it that this does that's different from everything else I've worked on that I need to focus on, then that's the process I would go through on a game anyway. Mm -hmm. So I didn't find VR to be that different. Mm-hmm. What I did find is there's a much stronger attention to detail required. That was probably the main thing I was conscious of is that because the the world feels much more real to you, um, 
you just have to make sure that you're meeting players' expectations. And because because people, it feels more real to people, they're comparing this experience to the real world subconsciously. They're basically when they behave, when they move around, they want what they're hearing and seeing to do what they'd expect. Because if it doesn't, that's what motion sickness causes motion sickness. It's like that lack of continuity between your expectation and what you're perceiving. Mm. It makes you go, apparently what's happening is a bit like travel sickness. Your body perceives that as you are hallucinating. And really? that's why it makes you sick. It's trying to get the toxin out of your system. Right. So when you, if, you're, if you get travel sickness, it. it's because <laughs> your, your visuals aren't matching because you're traveling. At a, you don't feel like you're traveling at a speed but your visuals are telling that you are. Your body, people get travel sick, your body thinks you're tripping. <laughs> I see, right. So <laughs> Which makes sense when thing. you sort of... It totally makes sense. And so, yeah, it's the same sense. with VR. If you, if you, you know, I could talk about the technology all day, but basically... No, no, it's, I don't so I think that's <laughs> the, on the sound side of things, that's the, that's, that's, that's the job, is to meet the clear expectations. from a technology first perspective and that's wrong you need to approach it from the experience first and then think about how the technology fits that yeah and that's the right way to do it because if you just go in thinking technology you'll end up using technology you might not even need or you know so oh, maybe overcomplicating it, it yeah. yeah and the thing is a lot of game audio people are quite technical because because it's a tech driven field games are tech driven that sort of through Darwinian pressures, <laughs> means people working game audio are quite tech-centric already. And that's one of the reasons why VR audio is so attractive to a lot of game audio people is because they're quite techy, and this is new tech. So it's like, well, hey. Um, and that's fine, but that's not... That's just, yeah, that might be interesting. Hmm. And I think for the initial wave of VR, it's fine to do stuff that's interesting to nerds, but ultimately you've got to create compelling experiences. And whilst the technology enables that, it's the people who are making the experiences that create those experiences. And so they need to be experience-centric, not technology-centric. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a fine line. I think in general, I would say that most game audio people are tech-centric rather than experience-centric, which is why it's one of the things holding game audio back from becoming more uh, the better version of itself is that um, people could do with being a bit more focused on the experience than on the tech because you need yeah, both yeah I think that's you true you need both I think that's but. true for music as well you know yeah. you, you made me think about yeah I think I think there are a lot of people making music nowadays they're tech centric mm. they're focusing on what the technology can do yeah. for their music yeah. rather than what people would like to hear or would work yeah, yeah definitely there's a, there's a heavy focus on the technology side that maybe is slightly unnecessary it's, it, it, well as lot I think I mean it depends what you think music's for like if if it's for you to be able to earn a living from pursuing that, then it doesn't matter what your approach is if you're earning that living, because then you're paying your bills. And so if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like if doing something tech centric and there's an audience for it, fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so something I've been thinking about recently is that what I've sort of come <laughs> come to embrace is that I do, I think I am, I've got quite, quite poppy, like, tendencies Mm -hmm. and I think for a long time I've been trying not to do that because I felt like that's not cool yeah (laughs) I know exactly what I mean (laughs) Uh, but what I've realized is 
maybe it's because I'm getting older, it's like I don't give a, sh- a shit anymore. It's like, if that's what I'm into, uh, as long as you're not doing it for, I think if you're doing it for commercial reasons, then that is where the, the, the dirty feeling comes from, right? Mm. It's like, I'm doing this because I want people to buy it and I think this is populist, so therefore it's a bigger audience. And that's not where my mind is. So I've sort of, I've sort of realised that it's fine for me to write stuff that is actually what most people could consider to be quite cheesy. Yeah. As long as that's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, I think that's the main thing. I think you've got to feel like what you're making is that you're happy with it. Yeah. I irrespective of the audience or the money or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think making pop in what you do is, it, it, is a valid thing because, you know, billions of people have heard your music. I mean, how many times have people heard the music you've made? Yeah, in terms billions of like track plays. Yeah, yeah track yeah. play, you know, that's, <laughs> it's popular. You yeah, know, that, yeah there's, that no, there's, no, there's no escaping is. from it. Yeah, um, and that must be a great feeling to know. Yeah, that and the thing is, it's hard to so achieve because like, I don't know if I'll ever work on anything as that was as big as Little Big Planet, just in terms of what are the chances. Like, it'd be great. I'm not saying I don't want to work on something as successful as that, but yeah, that the first game was bought by like millions, I don't know, like six million and then there's all the people that uh bought it second hand then there's all the people that were playing it on their friends couches that hadn't bought it mm-hmm. uh then there's i think all the people that downloaded it for for free when as part of the apology package for when playstation network got hacked oh right was it oh yeah, great, yeah. and so you know the, the terms of people that have played the game it's in the it's, it must be over 10 million i'm sure it's a multiple of that and then there's a the number of times people have played the game once they own it and yeah, yeah, it's it, yeah, it is it is mad. But um, and wasn't there an element to Little Big Planet where people could make that or no Little Big Planet two? Yeah, about the music sequence or Little Big two. Yeah, which, yeah, which was super primitive. Like it wasn't um, complex. I mean, we we literally developed that in a matter of weeks. So it was like I had to threaten to quit <laughs> <laughs> to get it because like the audio experience in Little Big Planet two was otherwise just going to be more of the same aesthetically it was like different but there wasn't going to be any new features and it was like that's a bit of rubbish <laughs> can mm-hmm. we not add something and so the music sequence was solving the problem that we had millions of levels being created in Little Big Planet 1 but like you know there was a limited like li- you know less than 50 music tracks if yeah, you bought all the that, DLC or whatever I was reading that thing that you wrote today which about is statistically it, yeah. th- that means you the music's the mu- all the same yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 3 million levels yeah which is just like nuts and um, but that's we it's not like we didn't see that as being a problem designing it. We just didn't think for a second it would be as successful as it was. So we have painted ourselves to that corner. So that's why the music sequence was really important in LBP2, as simple as it was. And it sounded terrible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's one of the things that uh, Media Molecule are sort of looking at now and, and the Dreams project. And I worked in Dreams for four years, so I was sort of responsible for the high-level direction in that. Uh, so that's why I know that it's <laughs> batshit crazy what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's brilliant. Yeah. And um, how do you, because you talk about sort of making poppy yeah. poppy music and obviously people hear the music over and over. Mm. What do you do with your music to to maintain that level of interest that it doesn't get annoying? or it, like How do you, what details uh, do you put in? Other than using interactive stuff. It's tricky. You certainly don't want a track that's any less than three minutes. Like that's like a magic number. Ideally, I find that is a magic four number. to six is like, if it's going to be something people are going to be hearing more than once you want to be in that four to six range. And then I think you could probably get away with someone hearing it three times before they start to go. <laughs> three minutes is is good, but 
I think once you go over twice, you're into danger territory. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting, though, isn't it? Because the, like, the seven-inch vinyl, when they made the pop singles, mm. they could only fit roughly three minutes yeah. of audio on there. Yeah. So there's that, and then there's, because of the repetition in, in, a, in a game looping, a game track looping, it's, it's to do with your kind of short-term memory. So if hearing it twice is fine, but hearing it three times is wrong, that's telling you something about the fact that you're having that feeling of, oh, I've just heard that. Also, I've heard that several times. And this isn't fresh anymore. Mm. Whereas if the track's four to six minutes, I think you, you buy a little bit more leeway with the number of times you can hear that track. So you can, because that's like at six minutes, the end of the third loop is uh, 18 minutes. Yeah. Whereas the end of the third loop on uh, three minutes is only nine, nine minutes, yeah, which is half. half that time. So like <laughs> the ratios there are interesting, but like, so it just depends. And obviously it, there's no point talking about that in, abst- in, in abstraction because what what how long is the player in the, in that level for? Does the game even have a level? Because some games are open world; they don't have levels. They've just got uh, more systems. So you might you might hear music when you're in combat versus you might hear music when you're near a particular geographical location, and then you've got the relationship between those two things. What happens when you're in the combat in that location? So you those open world games, the the interactive music systems are generally a lot more complex than anything I've had to work on to date. To be honest, so I'm not like Mister mm-hmm. knows what I'm not uh, like an Azure who's like worked on you know like Fallout games etc. Who I'm sure has to contend with. All those kind of problems. Although at that point, that's a collaboration with the dev team because they're kind of having to make the technology that dictates how the music will behave. Confused, but I think you're you did do um, something with uh, tethered where you you have what are the things called. Oh the, right, what the, the, the music stingers. The, yeah, that's it. The music stingers and and beat boundaries. Because what that reminded me of a lot was um, playing Monkey Island Two. I remember yep. when you sort of like you explained there, you go from one zone to another. It like ah, that's, it makes that's, the that was the eye music together. system. So. That originally that music was um, that was all note based, so we'd call it MIDI. I mean, it, it wasn't MIDI; it was note based, but it was fit for the purpose of the conversation. It was <laughs> MIDI, right? Because yeah. it was uh, <laughs> it was note data, which was triggering your the FM synth in your sound card at that point in the nineties. It would have been a little sound blaster card, mm-hmm. um, and so because it was note data based and it was being triggered in real time, it meant they they could um, do clever things to transition from one piece of music to another. Right, I see. Um, so they probably actually just wrote the transitions for that but then you could do stuff like you know trigger the transition on 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 the bar and do things like uh i don't i don't, I don't actually know how the IMU system works i'm not sure if it was uh, algorithmically working out how to go from one chord to another or whether they had just had to write a bunch of different transitions to do that but mm, i think it even did like temp there was definitely tempo yeah, changes, yeah, tempo changes well. yeah. like, and you can do that when you've got a real-time uh, note a database system because you're triggering it in real time so you just adjust the data is basically how you can do that mm-hmm. um in tethered it was a bit of a hybrid thing because the underlying bed music was streamed and fixed and it was uh i wrote it all at the same bpm it was all at 60 bpm to allow me to then uh, write stingers that were all at 60 bpm but of course the problem you've got about playing music on top of music is that they can clash because harmonically they might not be the same yeah even yeah. if they're the same scale you can still get some stuff that's like eh, it doesn't feel very nice so the we created a system to update the stingers so if the chord and the bed track underneath changes the stingers uh, chord progression will effectively change in real time to match that wise is you can play a stinger to match the uh, underlying chord but you've got to manually specify what that stinger would be for every chord change in the music and that's painful 
That's a lot. Yeah, and also, it doesn't have the ability to update the. So if a stinger is four bars long, the the wise. So it's a bit confusing to just talk about wise. So explain what it is for people who are listening. This is off the shelf game audio technology that people tend to license that in a project and use it for games. Cool. And you said that's a visual a visual scripting language. Is it like Reactor? Does it look... Uh, sort of so like the thing that? I made the stuff in Tethered for, that was using Unreal. So confusingly, Unreal isn't is middleware, but it's not audio middleware. It's an entire game engine, and that includes the audio system that is in Unreal. Mm-hmm. So it has a visual scripting system uh, called Blueprints, which can be used for actually creating the game. So traditionally, you would have to program a game. You Visual scripting is programming, but using little pictures and wires. Yeah. So it's a bit more like analog electronics or a modular synth. Like modular, yeah. yeah okay. That's basically how it works. It and sort of relates to that. that's how I created a prototype of the interactive music system for Tethered, was to effectively do that kind of visual programming. Um, and I got that to work. And then what's running in the game isn't what I prototyped. It is actually um, the people I worked with took my prototype and actually then coded it in C++ proper code. Um, to make it run more efficiently. Um, cool. Um, so go into like technology, and you talked a little bit about like Pro Tools, DAWs. What, yeah. what sort of technology do you use? Um, so you're making music? For, for music specifically. Yeah. Um, so my DAW is Nuendo. I mean, it might as well be Cubase in terms of music. The Nuendo's features that I use are prob- probably more useful on the sound side of things in terms of post production workflow and stuff like that. Uh, but it's basically Cubendo, and I use a mixture of uh, real instruments because you're in my room now. I've got stuff around. Um, yeah, I can confirm there are instruments. <laughs> there are instruments in this room, yeah. <laughs> and um, and 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 virtual instruments as well, both synths. Uh, and I tend when I'm using synths, it tends to be virtual synths rather because I've got a little modular synth, but I tend not to use that. So it's interesting. So like sound, I charge a daily rate. Music is generally per minute finished music. So the more time I spend in it, the me- it's, it's interesting because I want it to be good, but the more time I spend in it, effectively the less money I'm making. Yeah. So, which is, which is I, I would always veer towards it being good than me like trying to like, hey, well, who, who cares how much you're paid <laughs> yeah, if it's rubbish? So, but at the same time, like I can't. So I've been writing music recently, and I've been spending. These are they're effectively tracks. These are like three minute tracks, very traditional in terms of their <laughs> poppy like structure. Uh, and I've spent about seven days on the first couple, partly because it's the first tracks I've written for the project. So there's more back and forth with the client to get it to be what they want. Because we're still working out. I'm still working out what they want. They're still working out what they want. So there's a little. It takes a little bit longer to get started in the project than it does once you're actually knee deep in it, because hopefully at that point you know what you're doing and it's a little bit quicker. Mm. Um, what was I going to say? Ah, brief. So like you were talking about getting a brief or yeah. something. It's either, it's either been, for me, it's either been, I've worked with an audio director who knows what they want or I've worked with someone who's just asked me what, what do I think to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. Maybe because they don't feel comfortable saying here's what you should do because they don't want to look like they don't know what I'm talking about, so they'd rather yeah, I kick things off, <laughs> yeah, than they like do, um, and that's the difference between an audio director and someone who's not got that experience. Is the audio director does know what we're talking about, so they do have the confidence to kick the conversation off, and it's still a conversation. Like if I disagreed strongly, I, I could still say, "Are you sure?" Or you can do that thing where you do what they've asked, but then you also do what you think is right and present them with both, mm-hmm. so that they will 
hopefully, hopefully see the yeah. right one. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, you could be wrong because you in rating it, you may be like, shit, they were right. I'll not, I'll not, I'll not give them my idea because it was a rubbish idea. <laughs> so it's good to test your assumptions that way. I think that there's an interesting aspect of game repetition, which is part of that thing too, where it's hard for me to know, like, how good is my music? Is it just because people have heard it a lot that they like it? Because <laughs> I believe that that's a phenomenon. Like, I yeah, think you can like anything. You can like anything. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? You, you have a, no, I'm not saying your music is like that. <laughs> terrible. Like, my but, abusive music. <laughs> but there's a the thing, you know, if people are taken hostage, eventually they like their, their like desensitisation. Yeah. Well, it's like putting so up I'm with travelling on I'm the tube in London. Humans can put up with anything. Like, you really can. It's all relative to what you know. Yeah. And um, it's hard to know, is any music actually any good? Or is it just that we're exposed to it a lot? Like, I think that's a genuine... Yeah, I think like, that's a good point. Like, sort of is... philosophical thing is like, is any music good? Or is it just that... The, the, or maybe Yeah, like the fact that pop music is repetitious and that that is the most popular says something about that. And just because music isn't intrinsically repetitive in its natural forms doesn't mean it's not repetitive by the fact that people are choosing to listen to that particular genre over and over and over. And it's through their exposure to it that they become fond of it. Yes. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so that, that the concept of anything being good starts to go out the window a little bit. Yeah, because you get a bit warped and your 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 little path becomes <laughs> a bit more narrow, doesn't yeah. it? And you start walking down that path. Yeah. And that's why there are, there are niches. Uh, I guess it was talking about Madonna brought that up as well. If you're talking about William Orbit, then... Um, there are, she's enough of a of a draw that there are people there are millions of people who would buy her music irrespective of what it is if it was bad they wouldn't buy it again so there's like once you like maintain once you reach that level of like stardom you've got to like maintain a certain amount of like like credibility in your music otherwise you lose your fans mm. but as long as you can just like hit enough sorted yeah. <laughs> If you're a young composer or wannabe composer and you're like, right, I want to work in and write music for games, there's a bunch of other people that want to do that too. So the, the issue isn't about how do you do that. It's a chicken and egg situation. How do you get to work in the game when people want the confidence that you know what you're doing, but you've never done it before, so clearly yeah. they don't have any confidence in you. It's just, it's a really slow uh, war of... <laughs> whatever the opposite of attrition is. <laughs> a war of attraction. Attraction. <laughs> Where you need to just, every bit of experience you gain slowly adds a little bit more to your credibility. Mm -hmm. And obviously you need to start at the bottom of the ladder. You need to be working with people who also don't have any experience. That's why you're working together because no one would hire them either. Mm -hmm. And then, so you can work on some amateur projects. This is the thing. You can't wait for the world to find you. It's not going to happen. And... Um, you need to get out there and basically if you want to make music for games just do it now obviously you're not going to get paid to do it to start with but you you can't like you need to make your own opportunities yeah i think there's enough people making indie games i mean i yeah. I, I use a software called uh, renoise daw called renoise which yep. is a tracker yep and uh, even there's people on those forums that say i make computer games i'm looking for someone to make music i'm not going to give you any money <laughs> but you know just give yeah. me give me your music yeah. yeah i think those opportunities are you know they are so there so if you can find those then eventually you'll get a bunch of things one is you'll get a portfolio so you can have the work that you've done 
for games on your website. See, quite a lot of people who are composers, who are experienced composers, either just because they've written a lot of music, and you can hear, you can listen to someone's music and be like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Like, I can imagine that in a game. But they've not actually worked in a game yet, and they've not worked in a film yet, even if they aspire to do that. Just because you are good at writing music doesn't actually mean you've got the ability to write music for an experience because those aren't the same skills. So the ability to write music for music's sake, even if it's really good music, isn't the same skill as the ability to write music for an experience. And so mm. until you've actually got that, you shouldn't make the assumption you can do it either. <laughs> like wanting to do it and being able to do it aren't the same thing. So at that point, I would say to someone who's at the beginning of their career, you need to get that experience, not... It's not just to, so you can then get a paid gig. It's actually so you can learn how to do it. Yeah. Because you don't know what you're doing and you will make mistakes. And that will also make you unattractive. So when you get to a point where you've done it and you're doing good work and people like your work. And at that point, that will just get you more possibly no low paid work. The thing that will start to really open doors for you is once you, your lottery ticket comes up and that project you worked on that you didn't think was going to go anywhere ends up being... A little bit successful ideally it's you know like ideally like a world phenomenon but like <laughs> yeah you know be realistic some even a game that is just like that people have heard of if you work to something people have heard of all of a sudden when they're looking at whatever means they are reading about you or they meet you and you say what you've worked on they go oh i played that all of a sudden they're viewing you you're not just like part of the what i would call the composer plague That's so strange, isn't it? if, you, if, you, if you think of your any of your online interactions, you should think of that in the same way as you would a conversation. And like, don't put something in an email to someone that you wouldn't have put. Just if you met someone at a party, like your icebreaker should be the same at the party as it would be in your email. Yeah. But you wouldn't email someone with party chat. So don't email someone. <laughs> it's basically like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's difficult. It is difficult because if people are so desperate to make contacts, make work, but mm. you should really put your focus on meeting people in person and get out there and meet people that way rather than um like i think social media as well it's like it's a it's quite a lot of hot air i don't think i mean we met through social media so it's like but, yeah but that, yeah but in order to have a real life interaction so it's like <laughs> it's like it, i think that that is the right way to do it um yeah i think you're right as well in terms of like in the early days, you you take whatever gig you can get for no money, working with people who are as low skilled as you are, <laughs> in order to learn those things. I think that's such an important piece yeah. of advice. And don't expect to get really high very yeah. quickly. You know, yeah. w hard work goes a long way. And then eventually, if you're lucky, this is the other thing. Like, there's so much luck involved. Like, there's luck involved in in my career. I've been really, really, really lucky. And you know, people talk about uh, making their own luck, and there's that's true. You need to when you find yourself in a position where there's something you can take advantage of, you need to be ready to take advantage of it. And so that, that bit's on you, the being ready bit's on you, but you're not in charge of those 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 random things. Hmm. Um, be that me, you know, playing in the <laughs> Prokofiev, Peter and the Wolf when I was a kid, <laughs> wanting to learn to play the violin and the impact that had on my life and all the rest of it. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it's like a snowball. You pick up work, you pick up, uh, contacts and your net really net networking is such a weird thing because even now I don't think I really know what it is but ultimately it is just the social side of things it is meeting people that's, mm. that's all networking is it's meeting people but doing it in a way that isn't being a dick <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
basically. Yeah, not enforcing yourself on, yeah. on people, I guess. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your game sound website because it sounds just—it sounds like a really, really great idea. So it's an entirely voluntary organisation called Audio Mentoring, mm-hmm. and just now it's focused on games. I think they'd like to sort of franchise it out to different industries at some point. And if I had interest, right, for example, right. there was a group of um, um, film sound women who got in touch with uh, Ariel Gross, who's the uh, chap who started this thing, and said. Uh, we really love what you're doing. Could we just like take it and like do our own thing with it? But basically, it's it's kind of like a, a, a dating site <laughs> for mentors and mentees. Yeah. And so, partly because we were talk, I was talking about um, f- um, game music being you know ninety nine point nine percent freelance gigs. Sound has generally been more of an in house gig, but is increasingly freelance. And so, it's not just sound; it's for game audio, so it's sound and music, but. Um, one thing that Ariel was aware of um, and that we all felt like it was a worth one of the reasons why this is a good thing to take part in other than just like, helping people is like a good thing hmm. you know, karma points karma, for that yeah. <laughs> um, and you know it's something I've always been involved with in helping people etc so it's something that I'm passionate about but um, specifically because like I got my break as a in-houser who's now gone freelance um, I feel like because there are fewer in-house jobs now than there used to be that as one of those people who benefited from that, that it's only right that we try and help people who are in that sort of chicken and egg freelancer trying to be a freelancer thing. Mm. And one of the ways is just to give people advice. So, I mean, mentoring, it's not meant to be an educational course in how you make audio for games. It's really aimed at people who have already taken their first foray into into games. They're probably probably no longer a student or coming towards the end of their studies they've probably already made some games and done some game audio because at that point they've already answered a lot of those really basic questions about what is interactive audio how do you do it it's there's a volunteer council that that i'm a member of and we basically are the ones who look at all the applications from mentees of which there are hundreds so we're a bit drowned at the moment and then we also look at the application from men mentors and we, uh, you know, we prove or deny that. And we're, it's like, the main thing is like we've got, we've got a sort of a community guidelines which you have to accept before you sign up to this thing. That means that you know it's uh, hopefully a safe place for anyone. And we want it to be we're particularly aware that you know audio does have low representation of of women, and that that is something else that we feel like particularly women mentoring women. Mm-hmm. Um, not exclusively. There's, there's 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 men mentoring women too, but I think that a lot of uh, young women aspiring to work in game audio would benefit massively from having a role model that they can chat with, um, because in general, not just game audio, but in general, like women are up against <laughs> the, the, the the bias, the 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 massive benefit that all men have just from having a penis yeah. that things generally go their way uh, particularly music obviously. industry is the, the, yeah, exactly the same, same. Yeah. yeah really and so that's another thing which is not whilst that's not like an emphasis of what we're doing it's something that we're very much aware of and we think that it's a good thing to, to do hmm. um, and there are women on the volunteer council and there are the women mentors and, and once we do that it's really up to the mentor and the mentee what it is they're going to do we have like a minimum commitment of we need people to agree to have like you know either two two hour like sort of skype sessions or four one hour but basically over the course of a couple of months i think it's important that the matching up process is done manually and that vetting people's applications is done manually but in terms of the checking in with people because we kind of follow up after a few months to see you know what you're up to and stuff i think the robots could do that <laughs> um so it's a little bit faffy but 
Uh, it's a great idea, though. It's yeah. a great idea of giving back to, yeah, to so the Yeah, so audiomentoring.com. That's, uh, that's what it's called. Great. Well, thanks very much for talking to me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Cheers. Oh, it was so good to catch up with Kenny and talk about computer games. It's definitely one of my biggest passions in life, aside from films and music, of course. Okay, next month it's going to be a artist I'm speaking to who's a producer still making music who's signed to Ninja Tune Records. So look out for that next month, the beginning of December 2017. I am Midiera. Thank you very much for listening. See you later.